Chasing Majors is proudly brought to you by Bluebet, a true blue Aussie betting company. All right, Steve, welcome to episode 14 of Chasing Majors. And for this bonus episode, we're actually not going to talk about Tiger Woods because I've got a very special guest here with me in Orlando, Florida. I'm joined by Adam Scott, and he's going to take us, the three of us, back to the 2013 Masters, Adam's epic victory at Augusta National. Um, just what's it like for you two now that you're reconnecting uh, on the other side of the world for this podcast? Yeah, well, obviously, I've been out of the game for a little bit, and Adam's still playing. So uh, there's just a couple of players that I keep a close eye on, Adam being one and Ryan Fox being the other. So um, apart from that, I don't really follow much golf. So uh, it's good, going to be good to go back and share a few memories with Adam. It's certainly one of our, well, our most treasured moments, probably. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I uh, hear the pod's going really well, and it's uh, fun to catch up with you, Steve. Um, we do stay in touch, but everyone's busy, and uh, we don't catch up as much as we should, but I think everyone said that the last couple of years, so this is fun anyway to catch up, and certainly reliving what was the highlight for us, no doubt, um, is going to be really good fun and bring back some good memories. Yeah, no doubt. All right, lads, um, I just want to talk about the origin of your relationship. Obviously, you knew who Steve was. You knew he was probably the greatest caddy of all time. Um, how excited were you when, when he obviously said yes to, to come onto your bag after he had parted ways with Tiger? Yeah, I, well, I was very excited because, you know, I was at a point in my career where my game was really good, but I hadn't got the results in the big tournaments that I really wanted or, or believed that I could have, and I was I was looking for something. And uh, it was a little opportunistic of me, maybe, to give Steve a call when I did. But uh, fortunately, you know, Steve was um, was open-minded enough to say, yep, you know, Adam, I respect what you've done, kind of, and I'd, I'd, I'll come out for a week or two here while Tiger was out. And, um, you know, I, I would have benefited from just those two weeks having Steve on the bag and then... Um, Things happen the way they happen, and it, and it worked out that Steve stayed on my bag from that point, which was great. And Steve, I remember reading in your autobiography, there was a really cool anecdote where you flew to Heathrow in London, and Adam picked you up, and it was it was really moving, because you didn't think he was serious when, when he said he was going to pick you up. You thought it might have been a driver or something like that. Um, like, Did that sort of set the tone for your relationship? Oh, look, it was just, it actually blew me away, to be honest, because, you know, not many pros take the time to do something like Adam did there. That, that meant the world to me. And it actually, you know, showed that he was genuinely interested in, in looking after me. And, that, you know, that, that put the relationship off to a, a great thing. The other thing I do actually remember that drivers, and I always think about it, Adam wears a jumper unless it's 90 degrees. And it was a beautiful London day. And I jumped in his car and he had a bloody flash jumper. I thought, geez, are you coming out of the ice cube? So I always, two things stick in my mind about that day. One is he had a jumper on. I think it was 25 degrees. And secondly, it was an unbelievable. And we had a, it was a great ride down to the golf course. So that was, I do remember that ride. Well, it's hilarious that you say that, Steve, because not that you follow what's happening, but so I played in a sweater four days in a row in LA the other week, and it like made big news on the internet circles, which I'm not really up to speed with. I know you're definitely not, but I can guarantee Evan knows what I'm talking about, and all anyone's talking about is why is Adam wearing a sweater every day, and it was the same one too. <laughs> it was a, a tan sweater? That's right, yeah, yeah, it was like beige tan. So everyone was talking, everyone in the golf world uh, was talking about Adam's tan sweater. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like once you, what was your first event together um, for, the, for the listeners who might not know? And, and was the chemistry instant? Yeah, the, the first event that I cared for Adam was at the US Open. 
and at Congressional. And the, the, I think that was a, although he didn't play to his, what he, you know, his standard that week, that, that was a great start because in my mind, I thought Adam's preparation wasn't ideal the way he went about his preparation for that tournament. Um, he was in a, in a sense of the, where the viewers are now, he was over golf before the tee time on Thursday. So um, when we completed that tournament, from that moment forward, things changed a little bit in Adam's routine, how he went about preparing these majors, being ready to play 72 holes of golf for right from the tee, first tee on Thursday, and a few little changes, which I think made a great difference to Adam's preparation and to his performance. Yeah, absolutely. It was That was duly noted, and, and Steve made a point about that. And this, you know, we, we had a very upfront relationship, certainly led by Steve on the things he saw, but that was the benefit of me putting Steve on the bag at that point. Uh, and... But even though I didn't perform my best or well even at that US Open, I knew from the way a couple of things were communicated on the course that Steve was different in terms of caddying and this was going to be really good for me. How much did Steve have an influence over the way you prepared for majors? Because for us back in Australia, golf fans, we just saw Adam Scott go to another level at the majors sort of as soon as Steve came on the bag. How much influence did he have in that regard? Well, a huge influence, like you just said, he he identified what he saw as being weaknesses in my preparation, and he's ob- obviously to that point he also watched someone do it the best that maybe has ever played for the last um, fifteen years or so. So, I was absolutely open to using any of that insight to my advantage, and uh, you know we quickly adjusted things he also identified quite bluntly a couple of weak spots in my game that we can get to but I I took it all really uh, on the chin and to heart and and did my best to try and make the most of this opportunity when Steve got on my bag does that sound fair Steve that you sort of recall the same sort of things and and what did you say to Adam well you know I'd been fortunate enough to have been around Adam a lot. Uh, uh, you know, obviously when you're counting for good players, you get paired with good players. And I've been on the course a lot with Adam. And you know, he, Adam's had a remarkable career, but you know, obviously he needed to step it up in these big tournaments and that. So you know, I quickly identified some of the problems in his preparation that I felt would enhance his game and give him a better chance to be ready come Thursday, and then be ready for that back nine on Sunday. And then he had a couple of weaknesses in his game. Um, nothing serious and you don't you know that's always a touchy subject because the coach a pro has a coach and that and you don't want to overstep the boundary but there's just a few things that you note in their game that they could get better on short game as putting and that you know, I, I keep statistics my own statistics we've gone over that in some of these other shows that I'm huge on and they don't lie to me um, you know and Adam it, it, you know he, he took that on the chin like he said and he worked on some of those parts of his game and you know he went from being an average putter to a very good putter. Steve, was it was it hard for you? You'd you'd been cutting for the best golfer maybe who's ever lived for twelve years, and so he had set the standard for you in terms of what you saw in a golfer. Did you have to reel yourself in and remind yourself that Adam isn't Tiger Woods at all? Not really. I mean, Adam is a at the time when I went to work for Adam, like he said, he he was in a very in very good form, but not getting the results that he felt to. But you know, there was really no adjustment. Adam was playing equally if not as you know as good as tiger was playing so there was you know he just needed to sharpen up and be better prepared um you know and, and get a little bit more focused about it and uh, steve you had an instant effect as soon as you came on the bag obviously adam missed the cut at the the 2011 us open like you just mentioned and then he finishes tied 25th at the open and then seventh at the pga championship so 
you were trending the right way. Was, it, was there a sense of optimism amongst the two of you? Well, I think so. I mean, that's just looking at the majors. I think we actually finished third in our second event, which might have been the AT&T or something in between those couple of majors. And then if I remember, we won the WGC right before that PGA Championship. So we'd won a World Golf Championship together. So things got off to a pretty pretty good start, even yeah. though we didn't just run into winning a major in the first couple, but it was definitely trending in the right direction. I think all the things we've said, um, we were really open and honest with each other, and that was a good way to get started, and I was in good form, and Steve started bringing better results out straight away. And, and yeah, obviously, like you mentioned, you won the, the 2011 WGC Bridgestone at, at Akron, Ohio, the, the famous Firestone Country Club. And Steve, right after that, you, you probably guess what I'm going to get to here, but you, you made a couple of comments that it was it was the best win that you'd been a part of. And was the emotion just still raw for you from from the split with Tiger? And oh, undoubtedly, like you know, I was incredibly excited when you go to work for a, a player of Adam's caliber. Um, you feel a sense that you need to get a victory very quickly to justify your position as a caddy. And I, I felt the same with Tiger, Rayford, anyone I've cared for. These guys are great players. And when they hire someone, uh, I feel a, a sense of need, of urgency to get a, a victory. Um, and we were successful straight off the bat. Well, not straight off the bat, but very quickly in our relationship. And, you know, look, the emotions are running high. I, you know, And I obviously said a couple of things that I shouldn't have said. But, you know, like, I don't regret that. I mean, the emotions were high. Uh, I was disappointed in the way my relationship ended with Tiger but on the second you know that's in, in the world that we live in in this golf environment one door shuts and another door opens and you know I was excited to carry for Adam because it my goal when I first went to carry for Adam was I wanted to see Adam Scott be a major champion um and to to now to this day I like to see him be a multiple major champion and he's obviously in great form so I'll be watching the Masters with interest coming up because I've got a great feeling that Adam could uh to put that green jacket on for the second time and he might even ship that over to New Zealand for me to wear one day <laughs> <laughs> well you need it lucky to have a shirt on today but just to not to digress at all but you know I think it's really interesting and maybe I don't want to get too much off topic here but you mentioned about you know Steve I've never seen a caddy so into it out there as Steve and, and he felt what was going on on the course and he felt he needed a result no matter who the player he was to to justify his position and and command the respect of his player just like a player wants to command respect back and uh i feel like what what some people can't understand and to steve's credit it's a very intense working environment out on the golf course even though golf is the gentleman's game and we're out there competing there's a lot on the line whether it's people's dreams people's careers uh, you know the card and that to be out in that pressure cooker and survive all the time is difficult and that's why some relationships don't last very long and others have very successful relationships and then there's a bit of a break because you've got to cool off from each other but it is a little bit like revolving doors like Steve said and I think that's really great perspective and it may be hard for some people to see how much of an intense environment it is working out there because we spend a lot of time together and we live and die by the sword out there on whatever we say. And that is why Steve has proven to be one of the best caddies ever. He survived that pressure cooker with Tiger for a very, very long time. They were very successful and he always got results. Um, and, and just to maybe look at it a, a different way and just to remind the listeners, 
What Steve said was once you won that WGC in 2011, Steve said it was the best win he'd ever been a part of. And I would argue that, like, did that let you know that Steve was completely on your side and completely invested? And, and there was almost like maybe a funny, loyal side to those comments? Yeah, I think at the time, um, things were going well for me and obviously Steve on the golf course. And, you know, I I was very happy with the situation. I, I didn't find it a, a problem at all. But yeah, I think you could say that as much as Steve uh, was running on emotion a little bit. You know, we all do that. That's that's how it is. It's a pressure cooker out there. And, and yeah. sometimes you don't have time to just, con- you know, have great... Um, thought and restraint and and you're just happy and you can you can be that and it was no problem at all and you know the press had a bit of fun with it for a minute didn't bother us I don't think at all and and on on we went with the job 100% and you kick off 2012 really well you 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 know some good results then you get to the Masters and you tie for eighth so obviously you're starting to see some really good results at Augusta Um, with the both of you getting quite excited that that could be the major that you could break through with yeah, I think Adam's game was ideally suited for the Masters. He's a superb iron player, has the ability to hit a lot of those towering iron shots, which I feel is so important there, but also has great distance control with his iron. So he drives the ball good, has distance control, has the ability to hit the high iron. So, you know, in my mind, if Adam had the, if there was one major that suited him more than others, I felt Augusta was definitely one that he was very capable of winning. What about you, Adam? When you walked off the 18th or the 72nd at the at the 2012 Masters, what was the level of optimism and confidence for you? Well, I feel it was a good result. I think in 2011 I finished second, and that was just before Steve came on the bag. But okay, so I finished second and eighth. I uh, wasn't really in the mix on Sunday at the Masters, but it was more solid results. I think everything was going in the right direction. I don't remember the actual... Uh, ins and outs of everything that week but things were all going in a really good spot I think we can get to it or not if you want but the big moment for me was after that you at the next US Open which was at Olympic it was a it was a real uh, turning point for me in my head of like right I've had enough you know I'm going to make sure that a major's coming that after I left Olympic Club because things preparation was going well. We got off to a bad start and I played quite solid the rest of the week, but my first few holes cost me and we made a real conscious effort after that to focus, more focus. And and it took me about a year, I think, for really this focus that Steve mentioned a little earlier in this conversation to really kick in at the level of a major champion or contender regularly in the majors. And, and you finished tied 15th of that U.S. Open at Olympic. And w- once you walked away from that U.S. Open, and like you just mentioned about, you, you sort of drew a line in the sand. Was there a conversation between the two of you that, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to win a major within the next six or 12 months? Well, I think, I think you know, after the, after the first round there, you know, Adam was in good form heading into the first round, but I don't think his head was exactly where it needed to be on the first hole. And, and, and our big thing was that you've got to, the first hole to the 72nd hole, every hole, every shot has the utmost importance. It's not just when you get to the back nine Sunday. You can't get to the back nine Sunday and be in contention unless you start focusing on the first hole right through to the 72nd hole. And I think that was when Adam, the spark went off in his head 
that said, okay, I need to stand on that first tee Thursday and treat that like the 72nd hole, give every hole and every shot the same respect. It's irrespective whether, and I, and I always had this joke with Adam that the commentators always go on about the Saturday being moving day. There ain't no moving day. It starts on Thursday on the first hole and ends on Sunday. There is no such thing as moving day. <laughs> That's right. And, and can you recall that too? And also, Steve, um, was that something that you knew that you were bringing from, from the Tiger Woods camp, that the intensity stays the same from the first tee shot to the 72nd hole? Oh, I think, to be honest, that probably came from working for Greg Norman. I mean, he was, you know, we'd play a practice round at a tournament that, and he'd be this jovial character and everything, and he'd stand on that first tee on Thursday, and the, the hairs on the back of his neck would stand up, and he'd be so serious for the next 72 holes. It was an incredibly intense with him, and that's what you got to bring. Um, and just going back a little bit, one of the most unusual moments of my caddying career, and I'll never actually know why I did it, and Adam will know exactly what I'm going to say here, but in 2011, uh, Tiger Woods was over practicing on the range, warming up for his final round at Augusta. Adam was on the putting green. I left Tiger. I walked over and said something to Adam and gave him a bit of a rev, well, not a rev up, but I gave him uh, what I thought was a, a nice little you know, minute confidence speech for that last round, and he went on to finish second, and um, that was something, I, I don't know where that came from, but this sort of, yeah, Adam will know exactly what I was talking about there. Yeah, I do, I absolutely do. He came over, and I was in contention. I think I was a couple back going into the last round. They were nearly finished their warm-up, heading to the chipping green, and I was just starting with my putting routine, so... But Steve came over. I think we'd played in, like, a little f- exhibition-style event a few weeks before and uh, Steve saw I was playing good. I played particularly well that day with Tiger at an event at Arlworth. Anyway, so we'd had recent communication uh, on the golf course, but he came over and he he said, Adam, nobody's playing better than you. Go out and play like the number one player in the world today. And it was a real rev up and it really resonated with me. And you know, that you could say, really, for me, that gave me the confidence then to give Steve a call later that year to kind of see if we, to bring us together. But it, I kept that in mind all day that day, and I played incredibly well. I actually stood on the 70, 71st hole with a one-shot lead. I parred the last two and lost by two shots because <laughs> <laughs> Charles Wartzel birdied the last four. Yeah. But, uh, I, you know, I thought that day I shot 67. I did everything you know, almost in my power to to win that tournament from behind. But, you know, that was a big boost from Steve. Brad, my coach, was standing there too, and I think he saw how much that resonated with me. Did you walk away from that Masters, which you finished second in, and Charles Schwartzel won, like you said, um, thinking that I want Steve Williams to caddy for me? I didn't think that was realistic. I, I didn't think that because I didn't think that was realistic at all. But, you know... Uh, Obviously, as things panned out over the next couple of months, I, I did. You know, it, it came about that way. I didn't think about it that day. But, uh, you know, but this is the kind of messaging that Steve gave me as a player all the time. There, It was assertive. It was confident. It was delivered in this fashion all the time. And and when you're going good it was, or bad, it didn't matter. You knew what uh, that there was no doubt. And that was fantastic to have as a player. Is that an underrated strength of Steve as a caddy that um, he can deliver the message the exact way you need it when you need a fire up? Well, absolutely. I don't know if it's underrated or not, but it may not be well known. I think his communication was superb. Uh, And 
that's such an important part of a player-caddy relationship. I mean, it's maybe the most important part. Chasing Majors is made possible by our friends over at Bluebet. Bluebet is the true blue Aussie betting company which offers plenty of markets in professional golf. Bet on your favourite golfers on various tours around the world, including every tournament on the US PGA Tour, both pre-tournament and in-play bets like first-round leaders and three-ball betting. There'll also be plenty of markets for the majors, starting with the upcoming Masters in April. One of my favourite bets on the Bluebet app is Tiger to win a major in 2022, and I think we'd all love to see him make another comeback. So head over to bluebet.com.au or download the Bluebet app from the iPhone or Android app stores and gamble responsibly. All right, lads, we move on to, to 2012. We went back for a second there, um, and obviously we just mentioned Adam finishes tied for eighth at the Masters, the 2012 Masters, and then the tied 15th at the US Open, and we move on to the 2012 Open Championship. And I know it might have been a sore point at the time, Adam, but you'd probably argue now that it was the, the it lit the fire that you needed to probably win the Masters. Um, to, to bring the listeners back, the 2012 Open Championship at Royal Lytham, you had a four-shot lead with four holes to play, and you made four bogeys coming in. Um, was there a level of heartbreak at the time, or did you look at it in a positive way almost instantly? It's still a bit of a blur, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know what Steve thinks, but it uh, no, yeah. I mean, it is absolute heartbreak, and in the in the hours and days following, it felt like a blur. I, I honestly felt numb. I was probably shocked, but. The only feeling I had was I now know I can win a major. That's what it gave me. I mean, that's if that makes any sense at all. It, that that championship was on on my clubs at the end of the day, and I didn't get it done, but I controlled the outcome, and that's the first time in my career that that I was in that position, and it didn't it didn't work out, and uh, it gave me the belief that I know I'm good enough to do this. And in the back of my mind, I figured I won't let that happen again. And, and Steve, what are your memories of the 2012 Open Championship? Yeah, look, I mean, Adam is exactly right there. I mean, he controlled the tournament for 68 holes, and obviously he made four bogeys. I mean, I would only say that, you know, he only hit, you know, what I characterize as two poor shots coming down the stretch there um, that led to bogeys. I mean, he, you know, he had an unfortunate three-putt um and, and so forth but he you know he got a bit unlucky where the ball finished in that bunker what would have normally been an easy bunker shot on the 17th hole you know the way his stance was then turned into a difficult shot and so forth but there was no question in my mind that when he completed that tournament that i knew the next time that he had an opportunity to win a major that he would do it so you know i i i would be pretty willing to say if he had a won that tournament at the open championship at Lytham, he probably wouldn't have won augusta so, you know it's just you know, it, it's it, it's so hard to win majors, but when you actually get nine fingers on the claret jug and you and then you, you let it slip out of your hands, I knew the next one he'd get because we we understood about the importance of playing from the first hole to the seventy second hole. And Adam started that week on the first hole. He started very very well. He played. He kept his emotions in check the whole way. He just made two poor swings um, down the stretch. And then, like the next time he had that opportunity at Augusta, and you know he made the best swings you could make. So he learned from that experience, and that's what you're going to do as a golfer. Does that sound right to you? That you, like, you just knew that you were going to win the next one. 
Yeah, I mean, I really believed I was going to win that PGA at Kiowa, which was the one major in between uh, the Open and the Masters. We got a we got on the tough side of the draw there on that Friday. If you remember, it was incredibly difficult that day, and I was playing some of the best golf of my life, and I was happy with a 75 or a 74 I shot. You know, it was so difficult out there. So we got a little unlucky there. But it was at that point in my career... You know, that eight months, although it was a long time to wait to get to Augusta in 2013, I used it. I tried to be as productive as I could. You know, some of the stuff that happened, there wasn't anything really horrible happening at Lytham down the stretch, but it was soft. Mm-hmm. And you you just can't be soft. Even if you've got a four-shot lead, you can't be soft to close out a major. It's a different animal than any other tournament. And I finally got the experience to feel that. And I didn't handle it well the first time. And I was sure that it wouldn't happen that way if I was in that position again. And and you've you've spoken to me before about the, the feeling that you had entering the week of the 2013 Masters that there was just no other outcome than you winning. Like what is that feeling like? Obviously, it's extreme confidence and um, you know, I I wouldn't put it as arrogance, but it was just that's what was happening. I mean, you know, I was playing the best golf of my life. I wasn't seeing anybody out there on tour that I felt could play better than me at that moment. We were in a really good spot. We'd done all the right kind of preparation and my game was sorted. It was just a matter of going out there and doing it. And when Steve and Brad and the team around me put me in a good frame of mind, you know, and also whatever I do myself, then golf should be fun easy and exciting and you embrace that opportunity steve you you've told me in a previous episode that uh you were singing a super tramp song the week of the 2013 <laughs> masters can, can you can you recall that song and tell us about it oh yeah it's just one of my little things that i do is every, every major championship I, I i pick out a song and that's the song that i listen to I, I, adam he has songs too he likes to do something similar to that but the song was a super tramp song and the song's called dreamer and the, the verse in the song that I like is, can you do something out of this world? And, and, and that's that's what I thought Adam could do. He could do something out of this world. And, you know, I, I can recall vividly that tournament. And, and I don't have a great memory, but I can recall that. And I never forget Billy Foster telling me. Now, Billy is a caddy. He's been around a long time. He played a practice round. And he says, Steve, never, ever, ever seen anyone play like that. They were playing for a bit of money. And Adam just wiped these guys off the table. <laughs> and, 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 you know, <laughs> It, you know, it was, it was almost I, I, that tournament. I don't like to compare it, but it's, it was similar to me from my point of view as a caddy uh, to the US Open at Pebble Beach in 2000, where there was just no question that Tiger was going to win. And, and I had the same feeling then. And it's the same thing between myself, Brad, Adam's father and, and, and myself. We needed to make sure that Adam didn't overdo it, didn't do any unnecessary things, because sometimes when a player is absolutely so in tune sometimes they can make this unconscious mistake of going to the range and tweaking something because they think they might be able to get a little bit better now that's just you just absolutely can't do that because adam was just you know everything he stood over the golf ball it was like looking at arnold palmer when he was in his prime he stood over the golf. you knew he was going to hit a good shot it's just it's not you know it's just how close is it going to be to the pin and um that's the sort of thing you've got to manage and, and, and you know adam's got to learn that as well and he did and he took, you know, he, he learned from that open championship at Lytham and he took that to Augusta. And, you know, we, it's just, you get a sense of calmness. Adam had that sense of calmness. He wasn't panicking. He wasn't rushing. He'd learned. He knew he was ready. 
Adam, can you remember much about the Super Tramp song? And, and did you remember that line, can you do something out of this world? <laughs> no, no. Steve has lots of little rituals that I won't go into. <laughs> but the, the song one's good. We got to know each other pretty well. We, I, I think a little bit talking away from the golf course, uh, when Steve caddied for me, we rented a house and he stayed with me. He didn't normally at other tournaments, but at the majors, we rented a house and we had a, the same chef come in and the coach stayed and my dad sometimes stayed. And we had a really good thing going. It was a really fun time. We got to know each other a little bit better um, through that. And we we both have a, probably a few secrets about each other that we're not going to share today, are we, Steve? <laughs> so... Um, it was really fun, but yeah, Steve Steve likes his music and stuff, and, and we both had some good, really generally good vibes in those those times in those houses, but certainly at Augusta, there was something going on, and, and the banter was flowing, and, uh, you know, we just, we kept positive, really, all that week, and, and just kept doing our thing, and even when, you know, getting into contention... Thing, things were in a really good place that week and it was just going to have to be us. How long did it take the two of you to sort of become almost like work friends in a sense? Was the chemistry instant? I know obviously we just mentioned before that he picked you picked him up from the airport and he really took that to heart. Um, was it within weeks that you sort of had this chemistry and this friendship? I, I felt I felt so. I don't know what Steve felt, but I wanted it to feel like that. You know, I really respected Steve had been doing this an incredibly long time. He he didn't have to come and work for me. I mean, I'm sure, you know, he could have done whatever he wanted. So I really, I really appreciated that he thought enough of me to do that. Uh, and, you know, we, try, we tried to keep it as real as possible for as long as we could. And, you know, like like I was saying before, we, we got great highs out of that we got some lows out of that and that's what the job is out there steve is it the same for you did you did you feel there was an instant connection as a player caddy oh yeah look i mean you know like i said before you know adam is someone one thing i enjoyed more about adam scott before i actually had the opportunity to work with adam like when i was caddying for tiger and i think a lot of pros and a lot of caddies for sure got it pretty bored with tiger winning so often and i would go from one tournament to the next tournament and you know i could count on one hand how many guys would say well done last week because the guys were just getting sick of it and i, I sensed it i felt it adam scott always took the time to come over and say congratulations and that yeah that meant the world to me because this is a guy who's a great player and he doesn't have to say that and 95 percent of the guys they got sick of it and adam always took the opportunity or not took the opportunity he he, he made a point of whenever he saw me after a victory, he'd come over. And that meant a lot to me, that did. Um, but w- when you go into a, a relationship and you're going to care for a golfer, you know, you assess one guy's how they play and, and what is the, the reality of their game. And that Well, the only thing missing from Tiger's, sorry, from Adam's resume was a major championship. Now, that was a huge goal for me to be able to say that, you know, I was going to be the guy that's going to help Adam get his first major and hopefully more major championships. You know, obviously we got one and we weren't, you know, we weren't satisfied with that. We, we strive to get more uh, difficult tournaments to win. He certainly had some opportunities, but as a caddy and you take on a role to caddy for somebody, um, that was just monumental. And, and if I look back on my career, I, I find that incredibly satisfying that I was able to not only come and help Adam in the, with his performance, but actually achieve something that he wanted to achieve. And it just happened to be Augusta. And it was so special because he knew that I'd spent many years caring for 
for Greg Norman. Adam loves Greg Norman. He respected Greg Norman. He grew up as a child idolizing Greg. And you know, it was ironic that Adam would be the would be the one. Obviously, I had some heartbreak moments with Greg, and Adam would be the first Australian to slip on that green jacket. It was. Uh, I look back today, I get goosebumps thinking about it. Are there any other memories from the the practice rounds of the lead up the, the week of the twenty thirteen Masters that that sort of stand out to the both of you? Well, I knew I was playing good because I took the money off the guys I played with that <laughs> week. Um, you know, every, everything was feeling really good and I was really just trying to do all the right things um, without sounding cliche, not get ahead of myself, pace myself, not wear myself out, do all the stuff that Steve and I and Brad had talked about in the lead-up and how we're preparing and then just be in a really good place mentally to go out and do it. Um, and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here on this, but one of the the best things I've seen out of Steve and my relationship is the few times I've rewatched the end of that Masters is our communication on the 72nd hole in the fairway. And I just look at that and go, here's two guys, so intense, both of us, uh, and especially me. Steve's generally intense out there. I think we're used to that. <laughs> but here he is. He's rubbed off on me, and here's Scotty, all, all intense, and our discussion was so clear and so direct. I'd say something, Steve would wait for me to finish. He'd reply back, I'd wait for him to finish. It was, it was really remarkable to me when I watched that, how well we were communicating there. And if we were doing that at all throughout that week, no wonder we were in a good spot. But, it, but I think it shows where we came from, from Lytham where we just didn't get it done at the end to this spot where we were in such a good spot. And that, that's one of the standout things to me as I watch the end of that Masters. It's really remarkable how well we were communicating in the most precious situation I, I've ever been in. That, that's incredible. It gives me goosebumps hearing that stuff, and we'll get to it in a sec. Um, but if we start the Masters, the 2013 Masters, Adam, you shoot a 69, three under par to be three shots behind uh, co-leaders, Sergio Garcia and our countryman, Mark Leachman. Um, are there any memories from the first round that, that stand out to you or the way that you got yourself in contention? Um, well, for first rounds count just as much as the last. We've gone over that. But I remember I drove it in a bunker off the tee on Thursday and I hit it to about two feet out the bunker to the kind of back left pin. And we were playing with Sergio, actually, so I liked that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> tapped that in for a three, so it was a nice way to start. That, that's really the strongest memory I have of that round. I mean, um, there was lots of solid golf that week, is so I would have imagined there wasn't anything crazy going on that day. Um, the second round, Adam, you shoot a, a 72, and, and it keeps you in contention at three under par. You're three behind the leader after the second round, another countryman of ours, Jason Day. Um, were the conditions tougher on, on Friday? Because this is known as one of the, the wet masters, you know, and one of the tough wet masters. Um, was that a was that a hard fight, hard fought seventy two? I should say. Well, my memories of that round was a slow start. I don't know if you remember that, Steve. I think I had three bogeys on the front nine, and we we rallied back with three on the back, and got it in in seventy two. And I mean, if there's any there was any hiccup that week, it was obviously the front nine. I actually think the front nine is a really tough start to a major championship. Um, the first 
six or seven holes, it can go wrong very easily for you. So, um, and I've experienced that a lot there. Um, you've really got to be sharp right from the get-go and, and must have made a few mistakes and, and made three bogeys. But, you know, all the the work of whether it's physical or mental had to kick in for that back nine to rally back and not shoot yourself out of the tournament, I would I would say, is my rem- memory of that day. Steve, do you feel like you did anything that day as a caddy to, to help keep Adam in the game, in the fight? Yeah, well, it was tough conditions. There's no question about that. And, and it, it, it wasn't like, even though Adam was over par early in the round, it wasn't like he was falling down the leaderboard. I mean, you know, it was very, very tough conditions. But, you know, we got to the back nine there and, and we both said to each other on the 10th, the old, not the 10th, I distinctly remember walking from the back of the ninth green through behind the 18th green, past the putting green to the 10th tee. And we both said, if we can get it back to even par here, we're in great shape. I said, and I remember saying to Adam, there's no problem for you to do that. You're playing great. Don't even worry about the front nine. Um, he, you know, he didn't panic. You know, he, was, he he had some bogeys on the front nine. They weren't poor shots or anything. It was just conditions were extremely difficult that day. And, for, you know, he when you're playing as well as he does at that particular point in time, it, it, it didn't really mean that much that he was over par on the front nine because it was difficult conditions. And, you know, you just don't want to panic. You don't. You, when a player is in that position, you, you don't want to force anything upon them because you know they're playing so well. It's going to come when the conditions get better and you've got a better tee time and everything. It's just going to all fall into place. And you know, getting it back to even on that back nine, you know, was obviously a, a, a great way to finish. And shooting seventy-two from being three over at the turn is a huge kick of confidence on and and, and all the work that he'd done. It just done not over that nine holes was going to set him up for Sunday. I was really confident on Friday night that that, that was major, um, that back nine. Um, if for like for the layman listener, but you know, watching golf, watching the PGA Tour, especially when it's soft and wet, it's it's you know, you guys shoot the lights out. Why was Augusta playing difficult in the rain that week? Well, I think the difference at Augusta compared to all the other courses is that. Although the fairways are very, very wet, the tees are wet, the bunkers are wet, the greens are rock hard. <laughs> it's just, it's a very, very difficult to get your head around that. Sometimes they have the underwater, the um, the sub air system at Augusta, and it's very, very difficult when you're hitting from very, very wet fairways, and it's wet, everything's wet, and then you're hitting into a hard green. That is something to very difficult for the, you know, to, to adjust. And, and I th- you know, I, Adam would be giving a better insight to me, but as a player, or as a caddy, looking at that, that's that is a a difficult adjustment yeah i mean it's just tricky generally isn't it augusta a a bit of firmness anywhere makes it hard and um and judging those those shots it's so important and you know when the greens are firm the quality of strike is so important it's just easy to make an error around you don't have to do much wrong and you're in a tricky spot and bogeys are easy to come by so you know it's one of those brilliant courses that is designed so well by a great designer and uh that's why it always produces such a great challenge and uh on saturday you rock it back into contention you shoot a three under 69 to to finish at six under after 54 holes and you're only one shot back of the 54 hole leaders angel cabrera and brant snedeker did you feel that day that you really put yourself in position to win a masters and and what was saturday night like for the both of you my memory of Saturday, first off, is making a birdie on 17. I just, I, you know, I was just 
behind the hole, kind of putting back up at it. And it just had the feeling like you need to make this to get in the mix, you know, just to feel a bit closer. And it had it had a sense of a moment, that putt to me, and in it went. And it almost like gave me the confidence, like, right, I can do that again tomorrow. That's incredible. Um, and Saturday night or Sunday morning, was there was there any nerves? Was there a, a sense of optimism? Um, take me through that night and that morning. Uh, for me, I, I think it was excitement, really. You know, here we are in a good position. You know, I wasn't leading. I didn't, I didn't feel pressure other than myself to just play a good round of golf tomorrow. And I, I think I was in a much better headspace, you know, even though it was only nine months since. But there, there was a lot of water under the bridge since then and lessons learned. And I think I was just in a much better space to go out there uh, Sunday and play a really good round of golf and a really good round of golf was going to win the Masters. Steve, did you feel felt like you needed to do anything differently that Sunday, knowing that you wanted to be the caddy who helped deliver Australia its first Masters green jacket? Did you go out about go out about it any any different way, or was there a sense of urgency? Was there a sense of optimism? No, look, you you, you never get ahead of yourself, and and it's a you know, every day is the same. Like when when you're caddying for a golfer, it doesn't matter if it's the first hole at Augusta. The first hole of the Bob Desert Classic, you've got to do the best job you can and give the best advice you can all the time. So, you know, the, you can't ever think of it, you know, like from a player's perspective, they look at the majors differently. But from a caddy, every tournament's the same because you've got to give the guy value on every tournament you play. And, you know, Sunday normally was no different. You know, we're in the house, we're having a good time. I always pop out a bit early, go out and have a quick look at those holes. I like to have a look at those pin locations, about six holes. I always had this little track that I did, get a feel for where the wind is. And, you know, you, you treat every round the same. You know, you, you, one thing you can't ever let the player do is, is to let them see that you might be nervous or or something like that. But fortunately, that's something I don't suffer from. But, um, you know, you know, we, Adam was in good form. You know, we all had a great sense. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't sit at the breakfast table and say, Adam, you're going to do it today sort of thing. But, you know, we all had a great sense. He, his game was good. His swing is good. You know, Brad's his coach. He's telling me he's swinging the club. Everything that, that the little things that they work on, Adam and Brad work on, you know, there was no tweaks needed that week. And if you can play in a golf corner and all the coach does is stand back and observe, and that's all Brad did that week was just observe because everything was in a good spot. Well, there was no reason from Saturday, a fine round on Saturday, the Sunday, there was no reason that anything was going to change. Adam was ready for the moment. It was, it was his time. And, you know, in sport, when everything lines up, it, that was his time. He was ready. Was there anything that happened on the Sunday morning that you now look back on that was a good omen? Was there any sort of juju going around that was just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, was there something at breakfast that, that just felt right? Just waking up Steve was a good omen. Breakfast again. <laughs> Scotty knows you had the same brekkie. Here. That was a. I, I had to make sure he had the same brekkie <laughs> to not be nervous that he's doing something different. Hey, this is a, this is an iconic moment in Australian sports. So, what what did the both of you have for breakfast? People would actually be interested in that. Well, Adam thinks I'm a little bit nutty because he's probably the only person he's ever come across that carries his own cereal bowl and eats the same thing 365 days a year. It's all coming out now. That's one of my little secrets. <laughs> okay, so this is one of the rituals. Yeah, the, the cereal bowl is great. It took us a while. To, it took us a long time to catch on to that, but it kept showing up, and eventually we caught on that he's bringing his own bowl to the house. <laughs> What about you, Adam? Did, do you remember what you ate for breakfast? Was it? I probably went with poached eggs and avocado on a muffin, really. I think that's pretty standard breakfast and a bit of oatmeal. Oatmeal is always popular with me. 
because you probably wouldn't have eaten and, until pretty until pretty late that night. So that that the protein and the and the uh, uh, fatty acids kept you going. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean we must have probably had a half a sandwich or something because we must have teed off fairly late. Um, maybe were we second last group? Yeah, two thirty on yeah, Sunday. So yeah, we were pretty late. So we probably had half a sandwich at the house as well before we went out to the course. I think. One of the other big things, we didn't waste a lot of energy at the golf course. We kind of got out there when we needed to. We did our work and we and we got out of there and we you know, didn't use up energy hanging around the golf course when we didn't need to. So we had a pretty pretty good routine and we stuck with that. We didn't do anything out of the ordinary and show up extra early for the, for the Sunday round. We went out there and warmed up and hit some balls and went to the tee. But I, I would love to have other stories of omens, but I really wasn't looking looking for anything you know I was just gonna do what I was doing every other day and I think I think when you get in those kind of frames of mind you know the blinkers just automatically go on you're just paying attention less to other things you're less distracted more focused like Steve said earlier on this is a random one but when you won at Riviera in 2020 I saw a good omen I was walking with a friend of mine a guy called Sam Farmer who's a a sports journalist for the um, LA Times and he was wearing a pair of rod lavers and I just saw, you know, obviously tennis icon, Aussie tennis icon, and I just saw those shoes, and I thought, I think Adam's going to win today. <laughs> the one, the one thing that was I did do different on Sunday. Now mentioning shoes, I wore a brand new pair of shoes to play golf in that day. Really? Yeah. Can you remember what they were? Because the other ones I'd left at the house, so I only had the brand new ones in the locker, <laughs> and I went for them. They were a pair of Footjoy Sports. They don't make them anymore, but they were brand new that day. And I thought, oh, I'm an R, and and I thought, don't I'm an R doesn't matter what shoes you wear, just gotta go and play golf. Don't worry about your bloody shoes. <laughs> that is awesome. Chasing Majors is proud to partner with X-Blades, who have been internationally renowned for decades for producing world-class football boots and performance apparel for athletes across rugby union, rugby league, Aussie rules and netball. The team at X-Blades are passionate about grassroots and community sport, and that's why they're about to bring their credentials to golf with an exciting golf apparel range launching this year. Watch this space and keep listening to Chasing Majors. All right, well, the, the final round is upon us, and this is one of my favourite days as an Australian sports fan. Probably you're, you're the same, Steve, as just a general sports lover. And it actually gets off... The way that you start the Masters is a credit to how much of a roller coaster it is on the Sunday, but you actually bogey the first hole. Um, what was the discussion, or was there any, walking off the first green between the two of you? Oh, look, I mean, the first hole's a difficult hole there. I mean, you, you know, you, you, you never feel like you're losing ground when you make a bogey on the first hole. You know, it's it's a hole that you could make a higher score than that if you hit the ball in the wrong position. So you you, you don't, you know, you, you'd be unlikely in the first round, or sorry, the final round of Augusta if you didn't make one bogey over the first six holes. They're very tricky holes. That. So if you make a bogey on the first, you, you know, you, you don't really pay much attention to that. You just go to the second hole, it's a par five, you might make a birdie on the next hole. What about you, Adam? Just cop it on the chin sort of thing? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, one of the great things that Steve also introduced into my game was he didn't give me any opportunity to have a whinge walking to the second tee about it. That was gone, that bogey. That was in the past, and we're moving on, and we're picking a target down the second the second hole, and Steve's getting the wind and doing all. There was no. We never dwelled on anything that happened behind us. We did, he didn't allow me to have a whinge about it. You know, God forbid I made a double bogey, but <laughs> we don't want to talk about them. But, but anything that happened, you know, right, that was the past. We now get on this and we do our job right here. And that was the attitude. That's what I felt. And, and that's something that I've definitely carried on uh, ever since. You know, I'm not dwelling on whatever mistake I made in the past. My game is in good shape. We move on and, 
and do our best going forward. The combination of bogey in the first hole and not birdieing the second, were there any nerves or, or, did you, or were you looking at the leaderboard and just knowing as long as I hang in there and get to the back nine in some sort of distance from the lead, it would be okay? I think so. Seeing how the week was going, it wasn't a week where people were running away, shooting the lights out. We were starting at six under par and one back, maybe. So, you know, it wasn't a 20 under week where you had to just birdie every hole. Mm -hmm. And so, um, although it was a bit of a shaky start, I don't think I played the second hole particularly well either. You know, it's one of those things, just trying to settle the nerves. No real damage was done. And if I just stayed how I was all week the good shots would start coming and my opportunities would follow now you bounced back with a birdie at the third hole and it was a really tough putt if you remember it and you hold it did that give you a, a kick up the ass and a sense of optimism yeah it was good good to hold a putt early in the round I mean that for me and uh you know Steve can comment how he felt but you know putting was the temperamental part of my game when when Steve came on the bag I worked really hard at it to to get better and you know, to make when when it is the temperamental part, to make a part early in the round is a really big confidence booster. When you when you're like that, especially at the Masters in the last round, when you're in contention, you want to see something go in, or it can be a really long day. Yeah, and, and, and given the fact that it was a difficult part, you know, a fast part with a lot of break it requires you know the perfect part to go in. So that was, but you know, haven't Adam commented that, but he 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 putted very very well, very consistent this week. So. You know, I, I wasn't, you know, you're standing there, you're hoping the guy's going to make every putty he, he looks at. But, you, you, you know, if he didn't make that one, I knew he'd make the next one. He, you know, he, he didn't have that sense of sometimes, okay, you know, there were times when I was counting for Adam, I could tell he'd get over a putt and he's got, I've got to make this. And, you know, the, the hands might just tighten up a little bit and it gets a bit firm or whatever. But he, he, he remained calm. His stroke was fluid. I could tell he was holding the putter lightly in his hands and that. And I knew he was going to make some putts. I mean, that was a great one to make because it's a good hole to birdie in the third hole. Um, you know, you start 5-5-3, five, five, you're thinking that's a great start. So, that, that, you know, that was a, a good one to make for sure. Now you reach the turn and Adam, you're even for the day and six under par for the championship and you're three back of Angel Cabrera going to the back nine. Did that feel like striking distance to you? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity on the back nine. Um, you know, and I was, it's a good spot to be. I mean, you know, there was a lot of golf to get to that point in a tournament, 63 holes, and you're in a spot where you can put a back nine on it and, and win the Masters. Uh, and with the opportunity, there's a lot of... Um, problems that can come on the back nine so you never feel out of it if you're in that spot and I think you know Steve had certainly identified that for me um over over the time we'd worked together I mean I think you would have been going into that back nine pretty confident really Steve yeah oh absolutely like you know when a guy like when Adams he got to the position he was very calm and very confident with his game and that well, the back nine, you know, the, the front nine is a lot more difficult at Augusta, and the back nine is generally an opportunity once you get past the 10th and 11th hole, presents a lot of opportunities, 12 to 17. If you're playing and striking the ball as good as he was, you know it's going to give you some opportunities. So I, I was, you know, fully confident that he would be in the mix when, he, when we came to the last few holes there. One thing you have to do, and Adam, obviously you know this is a Masters champion, you have to step up and hit the big shots in the big moments. And you birdied 13, 15, and 18, which we'll get to in a sec. But um, the, the second shot into the 13th hole, very famous par 5, it, it caught the front edge of the green. 
it rolls slightly back and in some other years that might have gone in Ray's Creek and, and maybe your hopes are rinsed, maybe they're not. Do you feel like that's one of those breaks that sometimes the master champions get? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, Freddie Couples had that famous one on 12 where it stayed up on the bank and he went on to win the Masters. I was surprised it came back because, you know, I wasn't expecting that on the green. I hit a 7-iron in and I, don't, I, don't, I didn't think it was a particularly severe area on the green, but it looked like it spun back off the green and and stayed up there um but it was it was a good break look admittedly the shot was five yards right of my target and it was going straight at the pin but it just didn't quite have enough carry but that but somewhere in there uh winning any tournament i think you get a good break here and there and that was certainly a good break at a good time for me so you birdie that hole and you get into a a share of the lead you're at seven under par you go through 14 and then you go to 15 and and this is this is probably my favorite moment of the day because it's just it's such a sliding doors moment and we, we haven't mentioned Jason Day a whole lot in this episode but there's a huge moment where you're in the fairway and you're going to obviously go for the green at 15 par 5. Jason makes a, a birdie up ahead and by that stage he walks off the 15th green with a two-shot lead going to the 16th tee. Was there any sense from you of almost like it was slipping away like maybe I'm not going to be the first Australian to win the Masters and it's going to be Jason? Yeah, I mean, I remember standing on that right side of 15 vividly and uh, that's what it felt like when he tapped in and I could tell by the uh, cheer from the crowd, right, that's a birdie and I knew exactly what was going on. I mean, I wasn't afraid of having a look at a leaderboard on the back line, that's for sure, so I knew what was going on and, you know, it had started drizzling by then and that was a moment for me, I think, you know, Steve Steve felt those moments too. And we both knew that if I was going to win this thing, it required a shot right there. And uh, that there was nothing but a good shot coming up out of there if I wanted to be the first Aussie to win. Steve, were you like that? Did you instantly just think, well, we're not giving up yet. I'm going to help Adam hit the best shot of his career right now? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, like you, you just, as a caddy's perspective, you, you know, you, all you're thinking about, particularly on a shot of that's that difficulty, is get it. It has to land in the right part of the green. It has to be the right club. You know, it can't. It can't be a, a club that you actually happens to thrash to get there because if it doesn't come up, it goes in the water. But it can't be a club that goes over the back. So there's nothing to do with the tournament bar the fact that we need to get the right club in the hand. You don't think about what the consequences are. It has to be the right club and. You know, we chose the club there, and he absolutely had a great amount of made a fantastic swing, and you know, and the ball land. It was just, you know, it was a perfect shot. And uh, you know, you make the birdie, you carry on that momentum, and go to the 16th, and you know, that that's a shot there. Adam knew the importance of that shot. He hit. He made an absolute fantastic swing, made a great shot, and that gives you the confidence. The last three holes, right? That, you know, if I didn't hit a good shot there. I was probably going to be going to have a very difficult time to take this green jacket. So that was a great shot, and and that gave the confidence to go on and it's you know he played the last three holes superbly. Obviously, can you remember much about that the yardage in the club that you hit into fifteen? The yardage would be tough for me to remember, but it was a four iron. I know that, and it was just out of their first cut. You know, I think you know Steve had a knack too of making it a perfect club. He sensed a moment. And I'm not going to throw you away under the bus here, but he'd tell me the wrong yardage if he wanted me to eat a four iron <laughs> rather than a five iron because he knew. Yeah. But but that's how how confident and how sure Steve was because, you know, you can have no doubt at that moment. You know, you've got to put a great swing on it and it had an incredible follow-on effect for the next few holes. 
So Jason, um, unbeknownst to you, he, he goes on to bogey 16 and 17, and he, you know, the master slips away, and, and suddenly you're you're back in the hunt, and, and you're a really good chance to win. You get to 18. Can you guys take me through the 18th hole, the 72nd hole in regulation, the drive? I think it was an eight iron to the green and the putt. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Adam was, you know, he he, he like I said before. You know, you can't, like, one thing you can't say, oh, you know, Adam's the 72nd hole here. We've got to hit two good shots here. It's just another golf shot. He's hit millions of shots. Pick a line off the tee, hit the shot you want to hit, get up to the green there, get the perfect club. This is the line you got to hit it on. We know where you're trying to hit it. Then you hit it exactly where you're trying to hit it. Then you stand over there. You know you've seen the putt that many times on TV. You know the break and you just knock it in. Sounds simple, eh? <laughs> I know. I think I could birdie 18 now. I've heard that. <laughs> Uh, what was better to you, the eight iron that you hit within distance to to make the putt, or the putt itself? They're all good shots at that point. I mean, I thought the eight iron was great because we were just in that first cut and we had this great conversation that I've already talked about, mm. and that got right where we needed to be, right with the putt that you've seen a million times. I mean, Amir has made it, and I had it two years earlier um, when I lost, when I finished second, and I missed it just low, and couldn't have, it couldn't have worked out better for a putt on at that moment because I knew exactly where I needed to play it. That was easy for Steve and I to read. And, you know, it comes down to no matter what happens, I'm wheeling this thing in the hole. It's I'm making a move, and somehow, if it's a good move or if it's a bad move, it's going in. And it's a, I believe it's a right-to-left putt. They, they call it the O'Mara putt, and you hole it. And obviously, I'm going to give you some credit here, Steve. You actually... Managed a good high five for once. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, uh, it was obviously a very important putt to make because, um, you know, and I, I, Adam was extremely excited, um, most excited we've probably ever seen Adam at that point. But um, I was quick to tell him that, you know, Cabrera could very well birdie the last hole, be ready for a playoff. So um, the, the all that emotion and all that joy that he was experiencing walking from the 18th green to go and sign a scorecard. When we actually got to the, his golf bag, I sat the golf bag down and uh, I, I was very quick to point out that, you know, you've got to prepare yourself for a playoff here. Cause in my mind, I was thinking, you know, he's pretty excited here and he's got right to be excited, but we could be playing a bit more golf. So he just needed to go and sit, sign a scorecard and then think about the playoff holes. In its 51st year of publication, Australian golf digest is the oldest golf media brand in Australia reaching over 850,000 golfers every month. Australian Golf Digest provides the best written and video news in golf, both locally and internationally. Golf fans can get full access to the magazine through the digital pass, which starts from just $3.33 per month and also includes instruction, golf course and golf travel content. Head over to australiangolfdigest.com.au or check them out on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. So... Like you just mentioned, Unhel Cabrera comes up in the group behind you, hits a seven iron to tap in distance, makes birdie to join you in a playoff at nine under par. What what was going through your mind, Adam, in the scorer's hut? Well, Steve had prepared me for it, to be fair. I mean, I was really, I was literally still working on the card and there's a small TV in there and uh, you hear the roar and then you look at the TV and there it is. It's basically tap in distance and my mind was completely prepared to play more holes. I mean, without uh, making it 
sound too simple. It's like, okay, it's down to two guys to win the Masters. We started with about 88, and it's now two. I like, I like the odds are getting better and better, and I was, I was ready to play more. I mean, I was playing really well. I'd just hold a nice putt, and I was ready to do it all again. And we, Steve and I sat on a golf buggy ready to take a step back down to 18 for probably five or seven minutes. And there wasn't much, there wasn't anything said. There was no one around, and we were just, I was just kind of collecting my thoughts and in a good spot. When, when you're going to a playoff to win the Masters with Steve Williams on the bag, do you feel like when you run out on the footy field and you've got the six foot five kid who you know is going to he's going to smash anyone? Did he almost feel like he gave you a fifteenth club? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Steve, Steve was a weapon for me out there. You know, he was fresh off Tiger Woods's bag. He was intimidating for people on the tour, and that was a real weapon for me. And I think, you know, all of this we talk about, you know, and Steve was a, as a final piece of the Adam Scott puzzle becoming a major champion, there's no doubt, and it, and it fit in right at the right time uh, and did, did me the world of good. I mean, brought so many things. I've, we've highlighted lots of them today. We, we will summarise the, the first playoff hole quickly. But basically, you and Angel... Uh, your approach shots come just short of the green, and now it's kind of a chipping contest. Unhel nearly holds it, uh, and then you have to step up and basically get up and down to stay in the Masters playoff. Was there any discussion between the two of you, or was it, was it a pretty straightforward chip? Yeah, it, look, Adam, Adam's chipping and putting was right on song that week. I mean, it was just he chipped it up there, and there was no question he was going to make the putt. He hadn't missed one all week. He's not going to miss one there. So it was just now about preparing for the second playoff hole. So we move on to the 10th. And you and Angel both smash it down the middle of the fairway. And that's where I remember the both of you decided this is where we need to step up because darkness was falling. And can you take me through the, the shot that you hit, which Steve has actually told me before, it's the best shot he ever saw you hit in the in the six or seven years he caddy for you. That's a fair call. It's my it is one of the greatest shots I've hit. I mean, it's hard to describe exactly all the variables in that shot but there are a lot the the right to left slight right to left slope in the fairway the back left pin you can't be left you know needed to cut it to take a little yardage off because if i if i turned it over it was too much club to get back there but it was time to get it back close to the hole we saw it felt like a moment again you know we were not going to play many more holes really realistically i don't think we could have played one more Steve, what was your advice on that shot? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, you, you, you're walking from the 10th tee, walking down there, and you know it's going to be the last hole. And, you know, you're thinking about if you go to bed and you're going to wake up on Monday morning, you've got to go and extend the playoff for the Masters. Now, Cabrera's going to have a couple of cigarettes and a few beers and that and be totally relaxed about it, make no deal. You know, <laughs> to be, you know, not to putting Adam down here, but I think Arnold would handle that period between Saturday, Sunday night, Monday, a bit differently to Adam. I think Adam would be put a lot of thought into it. But as far as the shot went, I mean, this is a, it's just like it's the moment. It was a seven iron shot, but, you know, I knew and Adam knew it was going to be the last hole of the day, which challenged this pin. You're swinging good. You've not hit one bad shot all day long. Stand there with a six iron, three quarter hold off that. There. I mean, it was the best swing I've ever seen Adam make. It was just poetry in motion. I didn't when he when he hit the shot. I, I didn't even look. I just went up to get the divot. I mean, it was just absolutely perfect. And you know that that's like Adam said. It's a moment. You know, he could have hit a seven iron out and put the ball in the same position as Cabrera had and had the you know the same kind of putt. But it was time to challenge that back pin 
and try and put the tournament away on that hole. What was the feeling from you, Adam? Do you feel you just absolutely flushed it in exactly how you wanted to? Yeah, I did. I mean, it was it was flush. And to think about taking a little bit off and, and doing something in that moment, it's something I'd worked on into my game over over two years. I needed that shot. You know, I like swinging at it hard. It doesn't always get the best result under pressure. Sometimes it does, but that's my go-to. I'd rather swing it hard, but I had to have a shot. And I put that shot really in play for the back left pin at 16 at Augusta to have to have a shot to go in there like that with. But it's worked out that here it was. And, you know, when you're playing that good, you've got to be able to play the shots you've got. Otherwise, what's the point in having them? And here it was, and Steve, again, you know, he's a guy who will give you the confidence to play that shot. We were thinking the same way, and when he delivers it, you've got to hold this six. I believe it, you know, that, and that was the beauty of how it worked out there. You hit the shot within, I think it was 15 feet or so. Arnhill actually hits a great, a great shot himself. So now it's, you know, both of you have a part to potentially win the Masters or extend it, whatever. Arnhill goes first, and he, he hits a beautiful part, and it just grazes the edge. So now it's up to you, Adam Scott. To you got you got a putt to win the Masters. Can you both take me through the read? Because I believe that because the darkness was falling, you sort of underread the putt, and Steve said it's not even close. And you can see Steve's if you lip read, you can see on the broadcast Steve says that's not even close. Well, <laughs> uh, you're missing one word there, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to guess it starts with can F. We use that word on here. No, it's, a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting process because as we walk up from the second shot, you know, it, it, that is a moment that instills confidence, not only right then, but for the rest of your life. Because in my mind, that is the most important golf shot that Adam Scott has ever had to strike. And he hits it absolutely 100% to where you're exactly trying to hit. It was just a beautiful golf shot. And I'm as we're walking up to the green, I, I let Adam go ahead. Sometimes I walk with him and sometimes I wouldn't, but I, I let him go ahead so he just clicked his emotions of what was about to occur. And I knew that he would never have had that putt before. I, I, I just something told me he's never had that putt before. And I have had the experience there with Greg Norman who had that putt, and I just distinctly remember it broke more than, than, it, than it looked. And it, that's all I was thinking. And when he got up there and said, Oh, Steve, it's dark, you know, have a look with that and the other. Um, I was so pleased, but if he didn't ask me, I was going to have a look anyway because I knew that he wouldn't know how much that putt broke. Um, you know, and Adam read the putt and he said, "You know, it's a cup out," and I said, "That's not even fucking close. It's two and a half cups with a bit of speed." So, um, <laughs> I, I don't know if that was the right word to use at the time, but um, you know, that, that, that you know, he, he stood there and the same thing. He looked confident. He, he wasn't gripping the putter tightly. He made a beautiful stroke, and you know, the rest is history. Yeah. That's, that's how it went down it really was and uh, I stood over that putt and I knew this putt is actually to win the Masters and I made a stroke that I felt like showed I wanted to win I, I mean I think the putt was it went in the left half of the hole and I think it was probably going four or five feet by it was a pretty fast putt but I I think to make that putt more times than not it had to be a confident roll if I dollied it down there it could lip in, it could also break across the front, it could, you know, do lots of different things, but it was a putt that I had to hit with confidence, and, you know, again, I was really, it was, the whole thing came down to that, that, you know, early in the week, I knew it was my week, and on that putt, I knew it was my putt to win the Masters. So you make the putt, you become the first Australian to win the Masters at Augusta National, the both of you celebrate 
I would say fittingly for the moment itself. Um, Steve, how how special was it for you to help? It, it, there's a really nice synergy there, you know, like Australians and Kiwis are, are brothers and sisters. They're our neighbours. And it was very fitting that a Kiwi caddy helped deliver Australia's first Masters win. How special was that moment for the pair of you to, to earn that for, for Australia? Well, when, and yourself, when you know the history of Augusta and how many Australians, how many great players before Adam and how many great players after Adam will have that experience of trying to win that green jacket on, on arguably one of the greatest golf courses in the world and, and, and one of the best showcases in sport. Uh, well, one thing that's unique about Augusta is that it's like the Kentucky Derby or the Indianapolis 500. There are so many people back in Australia that watch this event that are not golfers because it's just the Masters. It has a worldwide appeal to people that are not golfers, but the general public that don't play golf. And it's a wonderful event. So to be the first Australian to put on that green jacket, it was just, you know, it's a, I get goosebumps now thinking about it. It's an absolute delight to see Adam do that. And to see his one of his dreams comes true, you know, as a professional golfer, you, you know, you look at a guy like Adam, he's worked hard his whole life on his game. And it's something, you know, I think he, he just wanted it so badly. And to be able to be on the bag and see somebody fulfill a moment, a destiny, a dream was, it was very special. Yeah, it was overwhelming, honestly. I mean, you can see as I as I won, it was instantly emotional. And uh, Steve and I had set out on a mission that took, nearly the better part of two years from when we kind of started working together to get there and uh you know i think it was fulfilling for steve and it was dreams come true for for me it had been quite a journey you know i i'd played a lot of majors to that point with with limited success i mean it was trending in the right direction but here and here we go and i won the masters and of course I, for an australian it was it was a huge moment and uh you know, the Masters is really something special in the game of golf, but also in the entire sporting world. It it kind of goes beyond just a golf tournament, especially in Australia, and and people still uh, mention it to me all the time. They know where they were when <laughs> Scott won the Masters, and it's a funny thing, but, you know, it really did... Um, it was a big moment back at home, and like I said, it was really, it was really an incredible atmosphere and environment on that whole 10th hole in that playoff it was dark it was rainy it was cloudy it was never how you thought you'd win the masters with blue skies and the birds chirping at augusta but i thought it was you know for me it's even better it was like a real atmosphere down there maybe you could compare it to a to a test match between australia and new zealand there was a real atmosphere down there it felt like to me you know it was really the cheering was incredibly loud walking down there steve's had it a million times but adam, adam scott hadn't at that point and uh you know it, the hairs do stand up on your arms when i go back and think about that um d just finally for steve because i know you got to get going um when you look back on your time together does it feel like destiny that the two of you got together and and delivered that master's jacket yeah look you know this is probably a bit of an unusual thing to say, but it's something that I've, you know, I've thought about a lot since I've caddied for Adam is that, um, you know, I, I had the great opportunity to caddy for arguably the greatest player that's ever played this game. Now, some people could say that, you know, okay, anybody could caddy for this guy. It didn't matter who could caddy for them. And, and there's some truth to that. When I went to caddy for Adam, he's a player that had great talent, and I actually wanted to validate myself as a caddy because I think a lot of people thought, well, like I said, you know, anyone could caddy for Tiger Woods. I, I felt like myself that I, I did a great job for Tiger, the best I could possibly do, 
Then when I went to Adam, that was like that was a that was a. I mean, I, I had thoughts when I finished with Adam and we were going back to the clubhouse there that that I should just wrap my career up right then because it was it was a it was a, a tremendous moment and I, I and to have that opportunity to caddy for the first Australian and and someone that that I you know I cared about because. I knew how much talent Adam had and I was disappointed from a fan point of view when I was caring for other players that he had not had fulfilled his potential in winning a major. So to be part of that was just truly special and I'll never, ever forget Adam. It was. It was great. I mean, I look back with the fondest of memories, obviously, at the Masters, but our entire time working together. I learned so much about the game of golf. Steve gave me so much knowledge and... uh, and tools to become a better player and we and Steve made the point after we won the Masters just to finish our kind of story of resetting the goals he made the point we need to reset the goal he needs a goal he needs to know what he's working for getting to number one in the world and we and we chipped away and we did that too which is also something you know it's a proud feather in my cap to get to that point where you are the absolute best at what you're doing is something that took years of work you know years of consistent play you don't just lob a few good weeks into number one in the world so you know we 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 achieved a hell of a lot in a pretty short space of time and uh but now not only that i've got a great mate for for life out of this and um you know i keep up to speed with everything that steve and his family's up to and we haven't seen each other in a long while and i'll definitely look forward to having a beer with him when i next see him that's for sure Steve, thanks a lot for joining us. Episode 14 of Chasing Majors. It's been a wild ride with you. The first 13 episodes were on Tiger, and the last episode was on Adam Scott. What an epic victory it was. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, I look forward to watching Adam at Augusta here in 2022. I'll have a little bit, Adam, so I won't put too much on it. But just know that when you win, I'm going to win a little bit for you too. There, there you go. Now the, <laughs> the pressure's on. The pressure's on. <laughs> in its 51st year of publication... Australian Golf Digest is the oldest golf media brand in Australia, reaching over 850,000 golfers every month. Australian Golf Digest provides the best written and video news in golf, both locally and internationally. Golf fans can get full access to the magazine through the Digital Pass, which starts from just $3.33 per month and also includes instruction, golf course and golf travel content. Head over to australiangolfdigest.com.au or check them out on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. The broadcast for an Australian fan, it adds so much to the experience of watching you win. And a couple of lines that have now sort of become immortalised in, in, in Masters folklore, um, one of them was, so you, you hold the putt on 18 uh, in, in regulation and Jim Nance says, Adam Scott, yes. When you look back on that, do you get sort of goosebumps down your spine? I think um, I think watching it, you know, I have it pretty clear in in my mind. There's a great like kind of aerial photo must have been out of one of the towers of the whole green, the 18th scene, mm. and my putt's gone in, and the fists are in the air, and leash is in the background with a a, a clenched fist, and uh, you know, it was umbrellas all around. It was quite a scene, you know. So, you know, I remember it really clearly, but there are definitely... The Masters produces these iconic moments and it gives the opportunity for the announcers to come with iconic calls. Of course, Nicholas, yes, sir, in 86. And uh, it's really cool to have some good ones uh, out of my victory. Of course, everyone who wins has has those special things, but the, the, 
the calls are fantastic. I was with Jim Nance the other day, and he was recalling what he said, and he said it was such a it was such a fun Masters to announce with the playoff and and everything that had led up with uh, Adam losing the Open to winning the Masters. I want to give Nick Faldo a huge rap here because. It's become an iconic line for for the Australian listeners that are listening right now. Maybe the overseas listeners might not get it, but come on Aussie is a real catch cry in Australian sport. It's been popularized obviously by yourself, Leighton Hewitt and the tennis. It was also a song in World Series cricket. But I don't know if we as the viewers would have known that you said that unless Nick Faldo actually lip read you. And you can hear him on the broadcast. He says, did I just, did I just lip read? He said, come on Aussies. Mm-hmm. It's just, I'm just so glad that Nick Faldo was in the booth at that time. Um, can you take us through? I think you've told me before that it's a little bit inspired by Leighton Hewitt. You'd played a bit of tennis with him in the Bahamas. How, why did you scream that? I think my entire career, there had been such a focus on when is an Aussie going to win. I'd answered that question from when I showed up, which I had no business really talking about to, <laughs> to that week as well. And then Jason and I were close and. Some other guys had been close and it had never gone an Aussie's way and I was playing with Leash that day. And Leash was brilliant too. Like He had a chat with me in the 71st fairway, keeping it light, and we were talking about Australia and stuff like that. And it was it was on my mind, you know, I have to say. I mean, I didn't know I was going to burst out with Come On Aussie, but that's what came out. You know, I grew up watching World Series cricket as a kid and the Come On Aussie song... And I had, I had, I'd spent a lot of time around Leighton uh, at that point in my career. And, you know, obviously he was an incredible tennis player, but I got to see kind of behind the scenes in his work ethic, even later in his career. I mean, this guy worked so hard and we were at the same facility training and it was like, oh, I can't go home yet. Leighton's not gone home, so I'd putt more or I'd chip more or I don't want him to see me go home before him because he'll think I'm not working hard. And so, like, there was so many, you know, inspiring things out of that and Australia generally that was on my mind and that just kind of burst out in the end, (laughs) which is quite funny. Two quick wraps I want to give. Leash, he was actually in contention the whole day up until 15. He rinsed his his, um, second shot near the par 5 15th. He's, he has put aside his own devastation to give you a bit of a fist pump when you hold that putt on the 72nd. So he is maybe the best guy in the world. Another rap needs to go to you. And I think your stock for Australian sports fans and maybe overseas sports fans went up because in the most important moment, the most celebratory moment of your career, you kind of thought of your country before yourself. And I think that says a lot about you and your character and, and who you are as an Australian. Well, I'm a proud Aussie, and we're proud sports people, sports fans, sports people. And, you know, it had been a thing. But Leash, the photo of Leash is one of my favourites, where he's in the background giving it a fist pump. His caddy was back there too also, and they got two huge high fives. I think I hit his hand a little too hard because he had a (laughs) four-footer still, and I'm glad he knocked it in. But the emotions were really flowing at that point, and it's, it's... you know, endeared him to life for me. You know, we're good mates now. We've had a lot of laughs ever since then. And, um, you know, that also shows his true character as well. He's one of our great sports people too. So, you know, I'm, I'm really can't believe that it was my uh, destiny to be the first Aussie. I've got this asterisk next to my name forever. 
Um, but so many other Aussies inspired me, including Greg Norman, to, mm. to get to that point. And the, the, part on, the, the part to win the Masters on the second playoff hole, again, Nick Fowlow, um, he, he, gets, he gets emotional and his voice cracks on the broadcast and he says, um, Adam Scott, he just became the Wizard of Oz. And I just think that, like, you can't come up with, you can't script a line better than that because you really conjured magic and you were the Wizard of Oz for, for weeks after that. It, you know, when you look back at that, is that pretty special? Yeah, it is, absolutely. I mean, to have, uh, have a six-time major champ, three-time master champ uh, commenting on, on um, my, my win there is amazing. I had a few years playing when Nick was still playing in Europe and we got to play and and he has a great perspective on what it takes to do these things. And he also had an un, a very close understanding of the heartbreak Australia had been through because he probably um, was the provider of the biggest heartbreak Australia's ever felt at the Masters when he came back. Yeah, came back and beat Greg. So he knew what it meant for an Aussie, and I think that was that was a nice call from him. And then Jim Nance. He, he has the poise and the class to offer the moment to Ian Baker Finch, obviously a countryman of ours, 1991 British Open champion. And Finch, he says, from down under to on top of the world, Jim. I don't think you could deliver it better, any better than that for that moment. Well, that's really special. Jim Nance is all class. You know, he's, he's a well-known voice in sports and he's now iconic at the Masters. But to, to pass that moment off to Finchy, who is a great mate, and uh, been an incredible supporter of mine and that goes back from when I was 11 years old I was playing in the Ian Baker Finch Junior Classic at Biwa Golf Club up in Queensland and Finchy has the biggest heart and the genuine interest in in most everyone out here playing golf and wants the best and um, to have him to be a be a part of that call and come up with a really great line like that is really special and and in some ways it it feels like I shared some of the win with him and all of Australia. Australians had finished second at the Masters eight times before you'd won that. You own one of those seconds. Greg owned three of them. Um, when you look back on it, what does it mean to you to, to own that slice of Australian sporting history? It's very special for me. I mean, only a few people get to be firsts and a lot of them are gone because... <laughs> Sports have been going for a long time now, but to be in that conversation of some iconic Australian sporting moments is fantastic. I think at the time, you know, the Masters was one of the few things left, the Tour de France maybe, and then Cadell Evans won, I think that summer actually in 2013, if I'm not wrong. It was was right around that time, but there were, you know, being proud sports people, we'd kind of conquered all (laughs) things we'd done except the Masters tournament and, and maybe a couple of other things, so... You know, I I feel, you know, such a sense of pride, but, but also, you know, everything you've put into it feels uh, validated <laughs> at yeah. that point. And, um, you know, the hardest thing is, is getting the next one, it seems, because it's been nine years. But golf is a long career, fortunately, and I'm keeping myself in good shape, and I, th- I still think my best golf is ahead of me. Last one before I let you go. I believe... Um they take your belongings that were in the normal locker room at Augusta National and they move them up to the champion's locker room like a thief in the night. So Augusta just has this, it's just this amazing beast where they seem to do everything properly. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yep. So uh, 
There's quite a lot to do after winning the Masters. It was quite late anyway, and presentations and ceremonies and interviews and dinners. And in the last thing we did that night, it was about 11pm, and they introduced me to the Champions Locker Room and showed me my locker sharing with Gary Player, which is great because I was able to play three times under his captaincy in the President's Cup. And... uh, Everything had been shifted up from the downstairs locker room, all the all my bits and pieces that were down there. Your brand new shoes? <laughs> the new shoes. I, st- I think I still had the golf shoes on. I don't even know if I've changed golf shoes at this <laughs> point. I had to change back into whatever I wore to the course that day. But um, And, you know, it's an, it's an incredible feeling to know that you're going up upstairs there to this kind of mythical room that is full of history mm. and and champions and... After being there for a few years, you realize how special it is because some of the older champions that make an effort to come back and hang out all week at the Masters uh, and what it means to them, and I fully envisage myself being that guy in 40, 45 years from now. still Hanging on. Hanging on and wearing the green jacket the whole week there, even if I'm not hitting a shot. Adam, thanks so much for joining me. Episode 14 of Chasing Majors, maybe our best one yet. Thanks a lot, mate. <laughs> thanks. It was good to be with you guys. Chasing Majors is proudly brought to you by Bluebet, a true blue Aussie betting company.